Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. Julie, we are podcasting on a very gray day. Oh, fog has not lifted for days. Right. The, the sky is just totally gray. My son keeps asking, where's sun? Where, where, where did it go? And I have to ex- begin to explain, uh, you know, rudimentary, uh, celestial mechanics to him. And then he just asks the same question again, uh, and then asks where, where is the blue sky? Well, and I think that is the power of the blue sky in our lives, right? It's depicted everywhere. It's, we, we were talking about this in children's books. You don't often see gray skies depicted. You see blue skies. You, well, you do in the Lorax. Which has been oh, my son's yeah. favorite book for seemingly forever now. These well, are bl- very blue skies as well. Well, but. you have to because of the smog choke skies, of course. Yes. Um, but, you know, I think blue is one of those really important colors to us because on some physical level, but also subconscious level, it in- end caps our visual field that we think of when we think about our existence. It's the color of the sky and the color of the ocean. Um, and yet... This is the thing about blue it is the ultimate magician appearing mostly as an illusion, which we'll discuss in a bit. Yeah, it's a it's a powerful color. Uh, you know, we're, we're going to get into some of the uh, the color theory in a bit. But, yeah, I mean, it's the it's the color ultimately of the of the sky and ocean. It's kind of the color of uh, of, of emotion itself. I mean, people sing the blues. Uh, uh, Picasso went through his blue, blue period. period yeah. I like I can't. Uh, uh, like when I think of blue in terms of this just emotional power, so I always end up picturing the uh, the picture of uh, that, that uh, Picasso did, the old guitarist, you know, where the very also kind of gray looking guitarist is sitting mm-hmm. there, his head bowed and looks old and tired and sad, and he's just you know caked in blue shades. Um, I, I also feel like with blue, I think back a lot to times when I was a kid looking up at like a really clear blue sky and there being something comforting but also kind of oppressive about it you know mm-hmm. and uh and i think about that a lot too especially if i'm if i'm far from home and i look up and see that blue sky there's something there's something comforting and universal about it but also universal in, a, in the same way that death is universal you know well it's that relentless blue and yeah. it's the relentless light of the sun right there's nothing to filter it um, I mean, is it any wonder that uh, modern Mongolians still pray to uh, Mount Kunk Tengri, the eternal blue sky? Is it any wonder? Yeah. Uh, ultramarine, ultramarine was the pigment often reserved to paint the mantle of the Virgin Mary, by the way. Ah. So That's right. She is typically seen with a very blue uh, color scheme. Indeed. So there are all sorts of associations. For me, it's Miles Davis kind of blue. Yeah. So in that synesthesia sense... Okay, so you, you listen to Miles Davis sing the blues and you actually kind of well, his, see blue? He has an album called Kind of Blue. Uh, and um, so I always think of it as a sort of rainy night music. And mm. it's a it's a very concentric patterned um, type of album and in, in that each song builds on this familiar pattern, which just kind of messes with it a bit. But so for me, it's that, that sp- Base of jazz and blues and melancholy and again, I feel like I've been talking about this a lot lately. The space, the absence. Um, but you know, again, the blue can be anything. It can be that baby blue. Mm-hmm. Um, it can be Prussian blue, turquoise blue, very hippie-ish to me. 
Yeah, and indeed, then you have that whole literally gray area where blue touches gray, and then you lose yourself in like the the, the German grays and German blues uh, melding together. Bauhausian blues. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Um, on the color spectrum, it's wedged between violet and green. It has a wavelength between 450 and 495 nanometers. And blues with a higher frequency and a shorter wavelength gradually look more violet, while those with a lower frequency and a longer wavelength gradually appear more green. Now, pure blue, that kind that you said had that sort of existential angst mm-hmm. to it, in the middle has a wavelength of 470 Nanometers, and we'll discuss this later. But this just happens to be the range of um, of color that we perceive the most with the human eye. Uh, and of course, I, I should also mention that blue is my son's favorite color, which I find curious because we've my, my wife and I have done no like coaxing along those lines. Like his his room is green, and we're not we're not shoving a lot of like blue for boys, pink for girls mm-hmm. kind of thing down his throat. But he's 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 just without question latched onto blue as his favorite color. And you ask him, he he likes blue. If he gets, picks out his own shirt, uh, animal designs aside, he's going to go for blue every time. Yeah, my daughter, who's six years old, also loves blue. I love blue. And what this is pointing to is that there's sort of a universal um, gravitational force of blue <laughs> over us. In 2011, Deluxe Paints conducted a survey involving respondents from 30 different countries and found that across cultures, blue was the preferred color, 42% among men and 30% among women. Now, you're probably wondering, what else? What about the other colors out there? The second favorite colors are red and green, followed by orange, brown, brown, and purple. Brown's good. Brown is an earth tone. My yoga mat is brown. So is poop. (laughs) All right. And then yellow is the least favorite color, preferred only by 5% of people. Wow. I'm so, I'm so glad that yellow is half the color on our, uh, our logo, but there, yeah. yeah. But we didn't choose that. We just, it's for you 5% out there. (laughs) We're, we're looking after you. Um, another interesting finding is that both men and women increasingly dislike orange as they age. Interesting. I, I've heard before about orange being an unsettling color. Mm-hmm. Like, um, if I remember correctly, the, the torture chamber in David Cronenberg's Videodrome is orange in color because the, uh, they designed it with some color uh, theory in mind that said that orange is a very unsettling color and, and is ideal if you have an interrogation huh. room setting. Inmates, right? Sometimes wear orange, or is that just, or is that just the, uh, I don't know. the I show? Like, I thought that was the just so black. that they would show up if they escaped. Uh, because yeah, again, who sense. would wear orange? Who's going to wear a full orange jumpsuit unless they've escaped from prison? If it were brown, <clears> maybe me. Green. Yeah, I like orange a lot. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I'm not opposed to it. I did go to uh, a university whose color was orange, and that kind of turned me against it a little bit, I guess. But you know, but by and large, I don't have anything against orange. All right. Okay. Well, let's think about 600 million years ago when things were just business as usual. The sun was shining and the earth was absorbing and reflecting that light. And uh, really nobody knew any better about what sort of colors were being produced because there was no organism that could perceive that light and color yet. Yeah, I mean, as far as the organism's actual pigmentation goes, you could have bright red, you could have a gray organism over here, sort of translucent over here, but it doesn't really matter because 
what limited kind of perception is going on is really just more about light and dark. It's not, it's about, about it's, so the sun is up, the sun is down, the moon is out. It's it, that kind of navigational, uh, sensory input. But in terms of what color anything is, it, it does not matter at all. Yeah, and now think about the earth and, and, and all of the, the vegetation and the creatures that were living, living on it 600 million years ago. A lot of the colors in plants and animals um, came from and continue to come from pigments, colored chemicals that absorb certain wavelengths of light. And these pigments, while we think of them as, as more like ornamental today because, uh, you know, we've largely hacked them that way or evolution has, uh, they have been helpful in other ways. Granules of melanin, for example, help keep bird feathers strong and help protect human skin from the sun. And chlorophyll is a chemical that helps plants trap light for photosynthesis. It also makes them look green. Well, it's so, important to note, yeah, because we often we look at like a colorful bird and we instantly think, oh, well, it's colored this way for attention. It's all about a visual presentation or it's about camouflage. Yeah. But there are actual structural properties that are essential here. Yeah. And we tend to think of them more as like color currency now. Again, peacocks, this this amazing display that is meant to attract a mate. But those are things, again, that got hacked in evolution um, it wasn't until a predator with eyesight uh, showed up on the scene that this became important. Color became important. And indeed, according to the NPR story, How Animals Hacked the Rainbow and Got Stumped on Blue, this animal is probably like a super fast shrimp creature. That suddenly it has eyes. It can see. It can pick up on colors. Mm-hmm. And so if you happen to belong to a species of, say, bright red uh little floaty, slimy, uh, invertebrate creatures. Up until now, it hadn't mattered that you're bright red. But suddenly, here's this super-powered, super-predator shrimp, and you're just sticking out like a sore, delicious thumb. Right. And as eyesight evolves in creatures, and as other creatures respond to it, then you begin to see animals, um, organisms, starting to actually go after camouflage, go after other tactics that would help them to survive with the colors that they have. Yeah, I mean, and it's it really gets just increasingly complex uh, as, as organisms evolve. So you end up with just this this perplexing maze of interactions that we continue to try and understand where you have you know bright colors on one creature are saying, stay away from me. And the other hand, they're saying, come closer, have a taste. And then other times they're saying, uh, please confuse me with the other creature that is colored just like me that happens to be poisonous. It gets very complicated very fast. Yeah, you have the whole Pantone spectrum in there and a bunch of reasons for them, as you have just pointed out a few. Now, the majority of colors are produced by pigments, now particles of the color chemicals that we talked about. And these are found within specialized cells. And these include melanins, which are found in nearly all organisms and produce more of the earth tones that you see that that are pretty common, even to us, right, Mm -hmm. as humans. And then you have carotenoids, which or carotenoids, which produce colors primarily in the red to yellow end of the spectrum. So think about, say, flamingos. They're pink because they're eating carotenoid-rich shrimp. Yeah. You look at like a baby uh, flamingo, they're not pink. They're not born pink. They're born kind of gray. It's only through that diet that they end up uh, stealing the pigments and incorporating them into their diet. Right. And it's a really easy way to eat pink 
be pink, right? Yeah. And you would think the same thing would apply to colors like blue and green, but you would be wrong because it's really hard to replicate these colors into the skin or feathers through diet. Uh, by the way, if uh, if humans eat enough uh, carotenoids, generally through carrots, yes, you can actually adjust the color uh, in your eyes just a little bit, but nothing on the scale of changing your actual skin color. Um, of course, if you eat beets, which also have carotenoids, you will see uh, other uh, color alternations take place. We talked about this in the Biospherians, right? They, they had a diet of oh, yes. uh, sweet potatoes, so much so that their skin began to turn Oh, that's right. They actually orange. did uh, eat enough uh, sweet potatoes to change their skin color. So, yeah, yeah if your diet is extreme... Uh, you can actually get in on the uh, the flamingo uh, ritual here. If you want to do that, yeah. a diet of sweet potatoes and sweet potatoes only. Now, you and I were talking about how the um, the fact that green isn't created in skin or feathers uh, easily seems counterintuitive because you look around and you look at the earth and it's just full of green vegetation, right? Yeah, I mean, it's one thing to think about blue as being this sort of difficult to obtain pigment because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it, mind instantly turns back to, say, the, the Radiolab episode where they talked about the possibility that the sky isn't really blue, that it's all just about us being told that it's blue. I, mean, I think about uh, Oliver Sacks and his uh, book Hallucinations, mm-hmm. you know, seeking after indigo and, uh, and, and taking hallucinogens in order to to perceive like pure inhuman indigo. And then you, you, you take in all that information. You can say, all right, I can see where blue would not really be a thing per se in, uh, in, in the course of, uh, of evolution. But green, yeah, green is everywhere. Green would, it would be vital to your uh, ability to camouflage yourself. And in fact, we see so many different green creatures. Uh, but when you get right down to it, we don't really have that much green, uh, in the natural world. No, and in fact, there's a bit of color mixing for some animals. So if you see a green frog out in nature, it's not necessarily that they're eating a bunch of chlorophyll and they're they're turning green. It's that they're actually color mixing within the skin and using those pigments pigments to produce that that green coloration. Yeah, it's a yellow pigment and a blue structural color, and the two end up uh, combining into this green effect. Yeah. Now, um, so far, in terms of blue, only two vertebrates have been found that have blue coloring as a result of cellular pigment called cyanophores. And both the mandarin fish and the closely related psychedelic mandarin <laughs> called the picturesque dragonette are vividly colored fish native to coral reefs in the Pacific Ocean. Indeed, but then it turns out that some of the uh, the sort of more iconic blue creatures are are not really blue at all. For instance, uh, the blue morpho butterfly, which is a beautiful creature, very you know picturesque example of blue. This is the one. Uh, for instance, you'll find it in uh, in Costa Rica, places like that. And uh, and there was the famous uh, situation where someone uh, I forget which publication sent a photographer down to get a picture of one and they're actually very difficult to picture to photograph mm-hmm. with their wings open while they're, they're they've landed mm-hmm. and so the photographer just got a dead one and pinned it up and then took the picture and it was there was like a mild controversy over it but it's a it's a very blue uh, looking uh wing surface but uh it, it turns out that you have uh, tiny transparent structures on the surface of their wings that bounce light in just the right way to give them the appearance of this vibrant, rich blue. It's really brilliant because on one side, they're brown. 
Right. And the effect and that's of, what you end up getting when you try to photograph them most of the time. You just have these brown wings. And the effect of it being brown on that side is to absorb all the other color from the other wavelengths, so orange huh. and yellow. And in the meantime, on the other side, as you say, it's got those tiny transparent structures. Mm-hmm. And that is what bounces the light. And, of course, as, as we sort of alluded to at the beginning of this, blue is a wavelength that comes through the best. And so that's what's bounced off the most through the atmosphere and off of uh, their wings, or at least one side. Now, if you doubt this as an optical illusion, as the ultimate mm-hmm. optical illusion, you could grind up their wings and you would see that there was not a speck of blue pigment in them, only brown. Ah, so if you wanted to grind up. That yeah. seems terrible, but yeah. Well, ground up butterfly wings, I imagine that's an ingredient in, in some sort of witch's brew. I mean, sure. Sure. Yeah. But... um yeah, the, the crazy thing about this is it all comes around essentially to metamaterials. You know, we're constantly running across new, new uh, studies have been published, new findings where they have some sort of crazy new metamaterial where we're manipulating uh, surface structures at a at a very minute level, mm-hmm. and in doing so, we're uh, we're changing the the ability of the substance to you know absorb or to shed uh, a substance, you know, shed water, absorb water, or in the way that it, man- it manipulates light. I instantly think back to the to Vanta black that we discussed. You know, where you have yeah. these metamaterials that make this. This, uh, this substance appear, the surface appear blacker than any natural black in our world. Mm-hmm. And, uh, essentially you have, you know, nature's been doing this, uh, since time out of mind. It's been, been working at that, that minute scale to manipulate, uh, the way, uh, the, the way that we perceive color. Yeah. You and I were talking about solar sails, mm-hmm. uh, earlier and we were saying, we're like, we're so proud of ourselves as humans. For creating this this material that can reflect light and uh, can do a bunch of things, and in the meantime, you have these butterfly wings that are doing sort of the the same sort of things on a smaller scale, albeit uh, for different reasons. Now, there's a 2012 study that found that some birds use bubble laced keratin. This is the same sort of stuff that you find in human fingernails in the barbs of their feathers, and it scatters the light from the feather in a way that happens to look blue to humans. And uh, Northern Woodlands Magazine said a simple way to test this out is to take a blue feather, hold it up to the sky so that it's backlit, and with the sunlight streaming through the feather rather than bouncing off its surface, the blue color vanishes, and you just get this sort of drab grayish brown but if you bring the feather down so that the light bounces off of it and scatters the blue wavelengths of light, the feather then appears blue once again. And this is called structural coloration. Huh. You know, the, the more we study this, the, the more it seems clear that, you know, we have this this naive version of reality in which there are just these pure colors. It's sort of Crayola understanding of the world. Where yeah. You have all these pure colors floating around and some pages are 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 uh, have, are colored with certain crayons and others with other crayons but it's really it's almost like there are no real colors at all when you start breaking it down it just gets it gets just gets so murky well especially when you consider other organisms out there like bees they they are perceiving ultraviolet light oh, yeah. that that we don't um but yeah i agree it's kind of funny to think of all the things that are going on that we do not perceive um, cause I was thinking about, again, that feather, mm-hmm. cause you've got that keratin structure and there's a layer of melanin and that is also working with the, so the keratin's bouncing off stuff and the melanin is absorbing red and yellow wavelengths. So all of that is going on, but we don't see it. 
Now, if you want to talk about a really fantastic blue that occurs in nature, or again, appears to occur in nature, uh, and we're talking like supernormal stimuli level of blue, then you have the berry of the uh, polya condensata plant, which uh, has an exceedingly blue, like reflectively intense blue that is just more potent than any other living creature's blue. Yeah, yeah, that's that's what uh, uh, Ulrich Steiner, a physicist, says about it. It says that its reflectivity is really more intense than any living thing. And he said most surfaces reflect just a small percentage of the light that hits them. However, this berry reflects 30% of the light. The berry skin itself has no pigment, no colored cells, or I should asterisk that. Mm-hmm. Um, but all the cells are coiled in this sort of twist, and the cells form sheets just like the skin of an onion. And that allows light to filter down through the layers in a way that creates, again, that structural coloration that I was talking about with the feather. And there's just a few cells in the berry skin that do reflect other colors. And that is what gives the fruit what Stoner calls a pixelated glow. Wow. So you, you have you have a few pigments in there, but then most of it is just completely structural color. You look at this yeah. thing, again, you think of it in Crayola terms, and you think, wow, that uh, that berry is really painted with a nice blue. But there's there's it's it's mostly uh, just a matter of structurally altering uh, the the way that the, the the light's playing with it. Yeah, and there's a good reason for this too. I mean, this is a very tiny berry. Mm-hmm. So, in a sense, it needs to do this. It needs to be able to reflect 30% more light so that it can have the sort of brilliant blue that is a beacon to birds to come and eat it and spread it, spread the seeds. It's it's basically like the, it's the smaller business that has blown its entire advertising budget on a really catchy Super Bowl ad. Yeah, I was going to say it's the Snapple of sodas, maybe. <laughs> I'm not sure if that fits. All right, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will discuss more about the color blue, uh, and particularly how it uh, plays into your eyes. All right, we're back. And before we talk about the color blue of eyes and in whether it actually even exists, mm-hmm. we should talk about the blue sky and whether it actually exists. Right. Yeah, you get into this uh, discussion. Is the sky actually really blue? And, and where do we even get that idea? Is it just something that we we hear about? We hear people talk about the blue sky? Like, did my I don't, I don't remember telling my son that the sky is blue. Did he indeed just pick that up from a book where he sees a more vivid depiction of blue and it looks like his shirt that he is told is blue? Did somebody at school say, hey, the sky is blue? Or is there an innate blueness to the sky? Well, you've probably heard the explanation before that because the earth is covered, you know, with 70% of water, that it's the, the sky is just reflecting that back. But that's not actually what's happening. Think about the absence of light, actually. And think about what happens when we don't have light up in the sky, when it's dark. You know, you get the stars coming out, and the sky appears to be a black velvet color. It's because, of course, we don't have any light from the sun. But once the sun is up and the rays of light play with particles in the air, right, the, Mm -hmm. the gas molecules, then you have this interaction of light and particles. And let's kind of split that white light for a second. Okay. Let's put it through a prism. If we do that, we know we get Roy G. Biv. And we know that each of those color components of this rainbow of colors has different wavelengths. 
And it turns out that the shorter the wavelength, the more these colors will scatter in the atmosphere when the sun is up, you know, during the day. And the more our eyes will perceive them. I mean, that's sort of the short and dirty answer here. Yeah, so essentially we're talking about the scattering of that blue light. And that's why we perceive the sky is blue. Yeah, because think about it. You've got oxygen and nitrogen molecules mm-hmm. you know, dominating the atmosphere, and they're relatively small. And so these are interacting really well with the wavelengths of indigo. Yes. And you're probably thinking right now, indigo? Well, then why, why doesn't the sky appear much darker, like indigo to us? Well, the second part of the answer to why the sky is blue is that the mechanics of our eyes are pretty flawed. We can't actually perceive that color as it is. And so our eye, our machinery, does a little bit of pigmentation itself. It takes some of that white light, mixes it with indigo, and you get more of a blue color. Now, the more light there is, the 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 more that color will change, right? The less... Uh, like there is, the the more that color will change on a different spectrum. So you get the brighter blues, darker blues. You get gray. Now, if you if you want to go over this material again, uh, we do have a video about the sky and why it is blue and why it appears to be blue. I will be sure to uh, include a link to that video uh, on the landing page for this episode at StuckToBlowYourMind.com. So this naturally flows into the idea of eye color. Old blue eyes. Old blue eyes. Frank Sinatra. Frank Sinatra, uh, who, you know, has, you could say, the skies in his eyes, in a sense, because the same thing is kind of happening in the eyeball. Yeah, what we're saying here, sorry, Sinatra fans, Frank's eyes were not really blue. In fact, nobody's eyes are really blue. Or green. Or really hazel, for that matter. That gets close to home, because mine are supposedly green. Sorry, dude. Yeah, I mean, mine are kind of gray-green. Yeah. Um, the, oh, the, the only true chosen ones out there are people with the, with brown eyes. Ah. The, the only people who are not trying to pull one over us with an optical illusion of different colored eyes. And this is because irises are made up of three layers, a thin top and back layer with a spongy layer in between called the stroma. And any layer can have pigmentation in it. And there are a few different colors of pigmentation that come into play here. So most people have either dark brown or yellow pigment in at least one of these layers. And the combination of yellow and brown go into making brown and amber-colored eyes. So brown people have these pigments um, in each layer of the iris, giving the eye a strong brown color. But when you don't, when you have sort of different uh, genetic uh, deposits of this pigment... In the eye and in the different layers, you have variation of eye color. Because what I'm talking about here is is that that brown, let's say, that's in the back layer, Mm -hmm. could be absorbing all the different spectrum of light, right? But let's say that you didn't have any pigmentation in the stroma. Okay. All right. But you have molecules hanging out in the stroma. Well, what's happening there is that, again, that blue light is bouncing around in there because all the other ones or all the other wavelengths of the other colors are absorbed by the brown. And then you have the particles in the stroma that are basically reflecting back, you know, sort of like the, the blue sky effect. Wow. So, and, uh, and and this is, of course, called the, the Tyndall effect. Yes. Yeah. And, and, uh, and again, it is fascinating because it is pretty much the same scenario that's happening with the blue sky. It's happening in your eyes as 
weird and kind of magical as that sounds. It's kind of beautiful, too, yeah. in a way. Even though it's an illusion. And like right now with your green <laughs> stare, you're trying to pull an optical illusion on me. And in fact, green, by the way, is the uh, the blue that's refracted and a small amount of yellow pigment in that layer huh. that are interacting. Wow. So whether you're looking up into the eternal blue sky uh, and, uh, and and trying to find some sort of logic there, or you're just looking into the, the eyes of a friend or loved one, you're you're essentially seeing an illusion. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And babies can often have blue eyes for a few days or months after birth because the melanin, the darkening pigment of the eyes, hasn't fully developed in the stroma. So. Um, and I've also read that the uh, the the blue, even in a, a person's seemingly blue eyes, mm-hmm. that will actually can uh, can fade over time as they age. Well, yeah, and that's yeah. because of the um, I believe the size of the molecules yes. in their eyes mm-hmm. and the amount of refraction or reflecting that goes on. Now, if you want to learn more about us, this is a uh, there's a great article by Esther Engel Arcus writing for IO9, and the article is called "Physics Proves That Nobody Has Blue Eyes." <laughs> so, as you said in an email to me earlier, take that, Sinatra. Yeah. You know, it reminds me that uh, Brent Spiner, who played Data on Star Trek, uh, did an album of, I think, just like kind of, you know, crooner songs. And they called it Old Yellow Eyes because as Data on Star Trek The Next Generation, uh, he has like yellow android eyes. There you go. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, he is. Yeah, Data was a, a beautiful, beautiful character. I liked Lore, too. He was all right. Now, what's the effect of uh, someone with blue eyes staring at you? I guess it would be different for each person and their personal experience with blue. But, of course, there exists a study to look into the psychological effects of blue, especially when it versus red. Yes, indeed. Uh Get into these uh, these color theory studies. You know how does how how does the color of a room affect someone's demeanor? Mm-hmm. Uh, th- there are even a few. We're not going to discuss them really, but uh, you know that th- look at uh, how Olympic athletes perform, how well they perform if they're wearing blue versus red. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but in particular, uh, yeah, how does blue affect say uh, performance on a on, on a test? Right. Well, there's a 2009 study published in the journal Science, uh, which are, where researchers at the University of British Columbia conducted tests with 600 people to answer the question, does, uh, does, does cognitive performance vary depending on whether you're looking at red or you're looking at blue? And uh, surprisingly or unsurprisingly, depending on how, how much uh, value you place on colors, the red groups did better on tests of recall and attention to detail. You know, such as remembering specific words, checking spelling and punctuation, you know, that kind of, uh, you know, fine tuning of material. But the blue groups, they did better on tests that required you know, imaginative, inventive, free thinking, uh, you know, coming up with with remarkable new ways to utilize this prop or that prop or that element. Yeah. And if you're wondering about the mechanism here of, of how it was done. Uh, the participants perform tasks with words or images displayed against red, blue, or neutral backgrounds on computer screens. Um, and I believe there have been studies, too, in which people were housed in blue or red rooms, certainly pink ones. We've talked mm-hmm. about that before. Um, but I'm not surprised that blue would be perceived as a creativity booster because I think there's a calming effect here at play. And we know that when your brain can settle and calm, then it feels like it has a little bit more room to play and to use its imagination. Yeah, and plus you could say, well, all right, if you're if you're staring up at a clear blue sky, then you probably 
you know, there's there's not as much mystery there. Like all is pretty much exposed. Mm-hmm. If you're staring at the the blue waters, and you're presumably not in the water, then you don't have to worry about what's underneath it. Maybe it allows a little just uh, just clearing of the uh, of the work desk of the mind. Well, it's interesting too. In my Headspace app, which is the meditation app mm-hmm. that we um, use, the Andy put a comb. Uh, the person who leads the guided meditations always talks about getting in that blue sky space. Hmm. And this is to look at um, any thoughts as these sort of gray clouds passing by. Huh. So already there's this idea that yeah, you are you're in some sort of other I don't want to say altered state, but other space. Okay. In which there's a sort of clarity. Likewise, red with the easy association there is of course blood. In fact, if you had to list associations for red, I would say like the first 50 or 60 would all just be blood, one listed after another. Yeah, my um, daughter has said she doesn't like the color red because she thinks about blood. Yeah? Yeah. But, of course, she has been uh, exposed to a lot of Star Wars and Ninjago and I don't know. Well, just with lightsabers, right? Uh, the the yeah. Sith Lords all use right. red lightsabers. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, all the... Uh, the Jedi, they do they use all use blue, and then Luke had a green one, or is it the other way around? I cannot remember, but I do recall that Darth Maul mm-hmm. has the right li- yes. red lightsaber. But not only that, he has the red and black markings on his face, which are very ferocious looking. Yes, yeah. So he's yeah he's definitely a good spokes creature for the color red, like yeah. very much just taking on red is this red demonic aggressive color. Uh, as opposed to a more, you know, a more peaceful Jedi would presumably have a, a blue lightsaber and dress in nice, soothing blue tones. Well, and if you decided to decorate your face with blue instead of red and black, well, you'd just be part of the blue man group, right? Yeah, There's yeah, not much not threatening about that. Threatening. Even if even if you really look at them and you start getting a little creeped out, you can only feel so threatened by the blue man group. You know, final final uh, note on that. There was an article in the New York Times published in 2009 by Pam Bellock titled uh, Reinvent Wheel, Blue Room, Diffusing a Bomb, Red Room. Um, she pointed out that uh, at the New York Times uh, at the time, yeah. anyway, uh, there were no blue rooms. There were red rooms, but no blue rooms. So you could imagine, you know, especially you have tight deadlines in place. It's all about like getting the story right, getting the story out on time, that it would probably be a pretty... Red room environment. Yeah, didn't they say in that article that the walls were painted a tomato soup red? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, keep keeping you on your toes, keeping you aggressive. I could I could see that being the place though. And yeah. lusty. And lusty. That's the other association with red. Yeah, and there there have been some interesting studies along those lines that you know that show that uh, you know man sees a woman against a red background or in a red outfit. Uh, there's going to be more, uh, he's going to interpret her as more beautiful or sexual, uh, that sort of thing. Yeah, red is a very fascinating color. And I think this all just points to this idea that these, the colors are working on us in subconscious ways, um, in, in ways that we cannot even perceive, uh, given the machinery that we have in our eyeballs. Yeah. And so we may cover a couple of other colors. Um, would be interested to know from you guys if you have a favorite that you'd want to know about. Well, you know, it gets right into symbolism, too, because we, we end up loading in associations with certain colors, mm-hmm. uh, sports teams, cultural things such as uh, Mardi Gras. Uh, when we were getting test uh, colors and test uh, designs for our website, 
a while back. One of the designs we were given was a brilliant, like, purple and gold design. And I think we both just said, no, this just, that looks like we're celebrating Mardi Gras. It's not really what we're going to go for. Um, but, but there's a lot of that at play. Like, someone might say, I like these colors because they look kind of Rastafarian, and others might say, it looks a little too Rasta for what I'm trying to do here. Uh, please keep those colors to yourself. Yeah. For my money, it's pink because uh, recently you had sent me an article with the title, Does Pink Even Exist? Or Pink Doesn't Exist? And there's all the sort of implications that pink has had, and historically, it's fascinating color. So maybe maybe we'll get around to doing yeah. that one. In the West, it used to be a man's color, and then uh, and we, then we lost it. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's hard to think of that now. Yeah. All right. All right. So there you go. Uh, blue, uh, uh, an exploration of the color blue, what it means to us, and how we perceive it, and uh, and where it came from. Now, if you would like to explore more on this topic or other topics, other color-related topics, uh, be sure to check out StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's our mothership. That's where you'll find all the podcast episodes, all the blog posts, all the videos. There's a search bar at the top of that. So if there's a topic that you're interested in, go plug the, the word in, see what we have on, the, on it. And if you don't find anything, well, get in touch with us and let us know you want some coverage on that topic. In the meantime, you can share your blue or red or pink thoughts with us and you can do that by sending an email to below the mind at howstuffworks.com for more on this and thousands of other topics visit howstuffworks.com 